Read along with me, if you would, please. Matthew twenty six seventeen. Now, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city of, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, they sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dips or dipped, past tense, his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, notice in the current tense, present tense, answered and said, Ravi, is it I? And he said to him, you have said it's important to note, side note, just to, so that we don't lose track later. Uh, Hebrew, there are no inflection, there actually, there are no verbiage in regards to making something a question. You make the statement and it's all in your inflection. I know there's some languages that are like that. For instance, you would say, it's me or it's me, but there is no is it in the Hebrew language. So when he says, it's me, he's like, well, you said it. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and he said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me thrice. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you that we can kind of huddle here around a food table in the corner of a church and seek warmth. More importantly, seek you. And I want to thank you for the beautiful privilege of every moment we get here in your word. You have so much planned, and yet in all of this that you have planned, you can lay out the buffet before us, but we still have to make the choice to eat. But Lord, it's more than just describing information. Jesus, you told us that to hear your word but not act upon it's like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. Sure, it's a house. But the moment that the storms came, the rains came, the floods rose, the winds beat upon the house. The house fell and great was its fall, but he who hears your word and does it.
is like one who builds his house upon the rock. So Lord, we pray that your word would burst open and come alive for us and captivate us in your word today. Pour your spirit upon me, Lord. Immerse me that you would be seen and that I would be empowered, Lord, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, that you would speak to every one of us above our cultural barriers, above our language barriers, above anything we may know, uh, Lord, in the world, Lord, speak directly to our hearts now in this time. And I pray that you would powerfully minister. Speak into every one of our lives right where we need to hear you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority. And I would say that if I'm going to say that about me, you can bet I'm going to say that about everything. Imagine if you tested all the media you, you read or heard by the word of God or the gossip that seems to go out on the, as we're waiting for a train. Well, in our previous particular text, Jesus has finished his seventh of seven sermons and he begins chapter 26 now moving towards this aspect. He's moving towards the cross. We are now, all of our focus is on Jerusalem. It's on the Passover and for 1,400 years before Jesus, we have been waiting for this one particular Passover where the Lamb of God will be slaughtered to set the people free. It is called, in essence, two things. It's called the Passover because the lamb was slaughtered, and as the lamb was slaughtered, the blood was put upon the lentil and the doorposts of the house, and the death angel would pass over the house. It was a really good thing that you had that blood on your house. But it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the focus, obviously, of the Passover being called the Passover was, in essence, you were delivered from the wrath of God. On the other side of it, the Passover being called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the focus on that was on its escape. <clears throat> and the idea was is that if you've ever made bread, perhaps you're aware of the fact that it takes quite a bit of time for it to leaven. Leaven, by the way, is simply yeast. It's what makes bread rise. So it isn't like you can just kind of look at it and throw it in there and expect the whole thing to be ready. It takes a great period of time for it to do so. And the reason I say that is for it to be unleavened bread, God's like, look at when it is time to leave, it is time to leave. And the focus is getting out and getting out quick. Now, in that, Jesus has shown us in these previous verses, the first 16 verses, a commitment, if you will, to two kingdoms. We, there was a contrast between Jesus, who was total sacrifice, in essence, giving his life to give life, and the religious leaders, man's kingdom, where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders showed total selfishness, in essence, taking a life to keep life. And there was then the comparison of a commitment of two, two, two kings. Uh, there was Mary, who, if you remember, breaks her alabaster flask, and those of you who were here last week, I can still smell it in my mind's eye. Um, I don't know if actually my mind's eye would smell it. My mind's nose. Anyways, I can still smell it in my memory uh, that as we sort of uh, sprayed the spike nard around the room uh, and breaking that which was irreparable and irreversible, irreversible and in complete surrender at any price was Mary's example. And then we have Judas, who everything, including Judas, could be bought at a price. And so there was this commitment to two kingdoms. Jesus and the religious leaders show that. And then the commitment to two, to two kings with Mary showing her commitment to Jesus and Judas showing his commitment to man's kingdom. Well, now Jesus is starting to look towards this Passover and we're now at the beginning of the Passover and nagging on Jesus for a couple verses. In Psalm 41.9, written a thousand years before Jesus would be born, David writes, 
And in essence, about Ahithophel, who was one of his chief counselors. Now, in fairness, David slept with his granddaughter, who we know as Bathsheba. But David says in that, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, this is Psalm 41.9, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus knows that he comes in the volume of the book, the entirety of the book. And in coming in the entirety of the book, he knows that this text pertains to him. Jesus would tell the religious leaders in the Gospel of John 5, that you search the scriptures thinking by them you possess eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. On the other side of it, Jesus also knows nagging in him is a second verse, and that's from Zechariah 13:7, where it says that you would strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knows that on the night of his arrest, which is now inevitable and awaiting him now, that he would be betrayed by one of the twelve. Now, by the way, in fairness, in John 6, 64, we read that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him and who would not believe. So Jesus knew, though never treating Judas differently, he knew from the beginning who would betray him. And yet, in knowing that he knew that Judas had a role to fill that goes all the way back a millennium to Psalm 41.9. But there's something in the... And forgive me for getting a little bit grammatical, but it's important to note it in this. That <clears throat> there is something in these two prophecies that actually is really very starkly different in between them. Now, in the one, in, let me say this, in the grammar in Hebrew, Hebrew is a very simple language, especially 2,000 years ago. And in that original language, first of all, there are no bad words. I do like that. They call it a pure language. In other words, and there's some other languages like that where you just don't have nasty words against people. You have to put words together like dish rag or dog face, but you don't really have words that are just, nasty words. Well, Hebrew is one of those languages. <clears throat> Every word is based on a verb, and all the verb tenses are only two. And what if God operated in this mindset? It's either done or it isn't. It's either perfect or imperfect. I mean, we have, because we think in a linear sense in time, we have three in essence. We have the past, we have the present, and the future. And that's really what we have. Greek, for what it's worth, has over 52. Greek's extremely explicit. But Hebrew, it's really simple. It's either perfect or it's imperfect. Perfect means it's done, it's irreversible. Imperfect means it's not fully done. And the reason I say that is both of these verses actually, well, let me say it this way. In Psalm 41.9, when it says, even my own familiar friend who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's not hyphal perfect. Perfect means it's done and it's done for good. In other words, this betrayer will betray him for good. He's going to betray him and never turn back. And what would it be like? And I remind you, it isn't like, you know, like today, to be honest, we could ask a lot of us about grammar and we'd, we'd rather jump out a window. But for a Hebrew boy, if he read the text, he would know that it was in perfect tense. I can read the Hebrew and tell you it was in perfect tense. And the reason I say that is, is that how would that affect Jesus? It's one thing to know someone's going to blow it on you. But it's another thing to know that someone's going to turn their heel on you. And the idea of that is to completely betray you. You're probably where in the Middle East and in many places to show the bottom of your foot is the ultimate act of disrespect. But to turn your heel on him is to turn your back. You know, we would say that you turn your back on me. But to know he was going to do it for good. 
On the other side of that, in Zechariah 13:7, when it speaks about striking the shepherd and the sheep will flee or be scattered, that, on the other hand, is in the imperfect tense. It's cal imperfect. Cal just means it's a matter of fact. Imperfect means that though they will be scattered, it's not permanent. And there's a great deal of encouragement in that. And let me ask you, is there anyone that you could possibly be in a relationship that isn't going to fail you? The question is, are they going to fail you perfectly or are they going to fail you imperfectly? And the reason I say that is, as we look at our text, if you will, we title it The Traitor in All of Us. Now, strangely enough, this could be remarkably encouraging if we take it to heart the way it's intended. So here we look at it. Now, it's important to note again in Luke 22, in a countertext to this, that we know that Luke, is our, Luke tells us Judas is already, is already agreed on a, on a price. He has already agreed on the deal. And here is the deal. The deal is I'm going to lead, Judas speaking, if you will, lead the people, the religious leaders, to Jesus when he's away from the crowds to arrest this guy so we don't create a riot. So Judas has to know a place where Jesus is a lot more remote. Now, do you find it interesting, if you remember in the text, and we'll go straight through it, but it tells us that after they had Passover, they sung a hymn and then went to the, to the uh, Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives is Lazarus' house, because Bethany and Bethphage are on, are on the Mount of Olives. It's Simon the leper's, where, by the way, if you remember, the girl breaks the uh, alabaster jar and then pours the perfume. And the reason I say that is these were places you'd think would be obvious places for Jesus <clears throat> to, uh, to go and have Passover. But because he knows people are trying to kill him, he has to actually have Passover someplace where he can't be found. And that is important to note because especially because Jesus knows that Judas is already planning to go and once he knows where Jesus is going to be, he's already planning on getting the crew, the, you know, if you will, kind of like a, the end scene from Frankenstein. And he's, he's going to gather, if you will, all these guys, these soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. But the Passover is too important for Jesus for him to get arrested there. Now, what John is going to tell us is that Jesus had often gone to the place where they're going to go in Gethsemane to pray. Jesus did that regularly, and understand the reason Jesus did that regularly is because he knew that would make it easy for Judas to get the people and get them to where Jesus was. But that was going to be later tonight. The Passover needs to happen first. So it starts with this. In verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, and I remind you, the stress is on departure. It tells us in Mark and in Luke countertext, Mark's fourteen twelve, Luke is twenty two seven. It was the day when they killed the Passover, or when the Passover must be killed. Mark and Luke focus on the Passover, but Matthew focuses on the Exodus, if you will. Focuses on the unleavened bread part, where it's the idea is this is going to happen quick and it's going to happen hard. The disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover? Now it's important to recognize Passover was a home feast. You did go to the temple for things, like when you went for Sukkot, for that of tabernacles, or for Pentecost, the people went into the temple. But the Passover was supposed to be something that happened in your home, which gets a little complicated for Jesus, who would tell us, foxes have holes, birds of the air have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus was homeless. Now, what would it be like if you went to follow Jesus? You knew you were going to become homeless. How crazy of a thought would that be today, especially on a day like this when it's freezing and rain? What a great combination that is. So Jesus 
knows that there has to be a Passover celebrated, and he knows it has to be at someone's house, but Jesus doesn't have a house to have it in. So the disciples come to him. In verse 18, he says, go into the city. What city is the city? Does anyone have any idea? Jerusalem. Bang it. It is Jerusalem. Which, by the way, again, the Mount of Olives is the Sabbath day's journey away. So, you know, and if actually, God willing, we're hoping to do another Israel trip in 218. We'll see. Keep that in prayer. So go into the city and there'll be a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, it sounds a little bit covert, doesn't it? It's like you hear in the background, bum, 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 bum. And once he tells, and once he tells you, you know, then the note is going to explode. And, well, it, we get a little bit more information in Mark and Luke. In Mark, by the way, we read in Mark fourteen thirteen that he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and he'll show you an upper room, furnished, prepared, make ready for us. Now, I don't know if you're aware of the fact, but specifically 2,000 years ago, but even to this day in the Middle East, genders have specific roles. Uh, You know, we have that too, whether we know it or not. Now, we like to argue about gender equality and everyone kind of everything's sort of lucid and all that. Uh, But in the end of it all, most married couples, the guy takes out the rubbish. Now, maybe that's not the case in every household, but it's kind of weird if the the man doesn't, if the rubbish isn't taken out, someone's got to be pointing to him, how come it isn't out? Now, I'm not trying to complain. The whole point of it is, is that 2,000 years ago, a woman went and got water. She went to the well and she got water. So for a man to be carrying a stone pitcher full of water is a little bit of a strange thing. But did you notice it tells us in Mark that a man would meet you? So you guys pop in and the guy's going to be like, do you see how covert this is? And he's like, so, you know, you see this guy, just look for a guy carrying a pitcher. That's, you know, that's a little bit of a strange thing. And as that's the case, he's going to come up to you and just follow him. Don't say anything like, hey, Jesus is looking at... Don't worry about it at this point. You'll, you'll do that when you're closer. You're not trying to gather a crowd here. We're trying to do this privately. In Luke 22.8, in the countertext, it tells us who the two guys are because he sent Peter and John. So he sent, if you will, two of Jesus' three right and men. And it says in verse 19 that the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And there's faithfulness even in these details. And when evening had come, Jesus sat down with the twelve. Twelve means Judas is included. And as they were eating, now it is important to note that, it does not say as they were eating dinner, but it does say as they were eating. Now, you're familiar, many of you, with the fact that we do have, we do um, the Passover celebration from a Christian perspective every year during Passover because it really helps us get a deeper meaning and understanding to a lot of this. But understand what the purpose of this celebration was, or inevitably the basic points of it. There were two basic cups. Uh, arguably today there could be as many as five because, you know, the more you add time, the more you add tradition. But there were two basic cups, one pointed backwards and one pointed forward. The first cup was before dinner. That cup was drank with the purpose of reminding you that God had a covenant with his people even when they were in bondage. The second cup was a cup that God promised. In other words, we looked back at Egypt with the first cup. The second cup pointed us forward towards the promised land that God was going to take us into the promised land. The word he uses is deliverance. And it is important to note deliverance is not removal. If you were to call and ask for a pizza to be delivered, and they were like, and you knew where they started. You knew where the pizzeria was. You call them. And they didn't ask for your address. 
would you be a little concerned? Because you're like, I want a pizza delivered. And I'm like, well, we'll remove it from this building. Yeah, but I need it at my house. But interesting, we're going to talk about we can have like a deliverance time. And all that means is we want to leave something. And that's not deliverance. That's removal. Call it what it is. True deliverance is going from someplace and getting somewhere else. And if all we're busy trying to do is get out of something, then we'll wind up in something else just as bad unless we're really concerned and we actually make a conscious effort to realize that the Lord wants everything in essence for us to be delivered into his arms where we belong. <clears throat> and so the two cups, the first one reminded us that it had to leave the pizzeria, if you will, and the second one reminded us it had to show up at your house. But during that time, we also had at least three different things that we know we dipped. We dipped what was called carpas, which was a vegetable, if you will. And that vegetable was like parsley. We dipped maybe you don't know that, but that's their surname. So we grabbed Dennis, we stuck it, and you stuck it in really salty water. And then you, you bit on it. I don't know about you, parsley's not like, I don't eat it and go, wow, this is really great. My grandmother would tell me, you know, because they used to leave it as a garnish on, you know, in Chicago, and she'd be like, that's so you don't have to brush your teeth afterward. Well, she had lost all her teeth, so I wouldn't follow her advice. But you take this parsley, and you dip it in the salt water, and then you bite into it, and of course it's extremely salty and bitter. And the whole purpose of that was that God wanted to show us this is what slavery was like. Well, the salt was supposed to remind us of two things. The sweat, because we worked really hard, but also the tears that we cried. And look at as Christians, we can easily relate this. Because we can look back at the time before we knew the Lord and romanticize it as if it were the glory days or the good old days. And that is complete and utter nonsense. You know, you meet that girl and she was going out with the guy and he beat her and he was horrible and he was unfaithful and he was just everything bad. But the moment they break up, she starts to remember those five minutes when he was kind somewhere in those three months they were together. And she forgets about the other, you know, nearly three months. And we can do that with our old life. We could look back and the enemy tries to make it look like somehow the life we left was actually better than the life we have in Christ, which is insanity if we were honest and when he's like don't you remember the tears you cried because you were empty how hard you worked to get nowhere and it never satisfied how hard you chased after things how hard you tried to make it work and you were still empty and you were still needy and you were still like this is just nowhere this is going nowhere well that was the idea but it got worse then there was the mortar and the mortar was a dip as well, but it wasn't into salt water. The mortar was the dip, and that is bitter herbs. Now, that you'd think parsley was bitter enough. Oh, no, this is, this is horseradish. And we're not talking about that wimpy stuff where you add mayo to it so that it's sort of like lovely on a Sunday roast. We're talking about the kind of stuff that makes you cry. You know, the kind of stuff where your whole face like gets a hot flash? It's like, Whoa! you know, and everyone tries to look cool, but they can't because they can't breathe, and they're like, and God doesn't want you to be like, take a little whiff. He's like, take a glob of that stuff. It's like, stick your tongue in the bowl of wasabi and lap it up. And the idea of it was, this is what it was really like to be in bondage. And this you ate. And you ate this with the bread. You sopped it. In other words, you dipped the bread in this. And say, this is what happens if we want to go back to our slavery. It's only bitterness. 
The reason I say that is it tells us here for what it's worth. And there would be another one in regards to something sweet called chorosis, that is about the sweetness of God's promise. Well, it says here, as they were, as they were eating, somewhere in this they're eating something. Now, when you dipped the parsley and you ate that first, you chewed for a couple of seconds, but there wasn't much. But you took a big glob of that bitter herb and you dipped it in that bread and you ate it. And I can't help the fact that Jesus is going to say here that these guys are going to dip together. And how profound that would be for Jesus to look at Judas and they're both sticking their bread in this bitter herbs that remind you of what it's like to go back to the bondage of your old life. And to look at Judas and Judas to look at Jesus and realize that Judas had never left his old life. It tells us in John that he was a thief from the beginning. He used to steal from the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he was with him. Judas was never a Christian that got led astray. Judas was a thief from the beginning. And in the simplest sense, he came into the fellowship where Jesus was a means to the end. He wasn't the end. And that's a scary thing because I'll be honest, every one of us could be there. We come in because we need peace. We want love. We want hope. Hey, those things are great. But if that's the primary purpose why you come in, if you get it, you can leave Jesus behind. Because after all, you got what you were looking for. And if someone's a means to the end, you get off the bus when you get to your destination. But if Jesus is the end, you never want to leave. Well, with that in mind, he sat down with the twelve and he says, as they were eating... Now, ultimately, you would have these dips, and ultimately, then, you would have a meal. And as you had the meal, right in between those two, you would tell this story, this story of the Exodus. You would read Exodus 12, in essence. See, you'd never forget why in the world you were doing this, or you were supposed to not. And then you ate a meal. And he says, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. This is verse 22. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, there's two key points that I don't want us to miss in this. Uh, Mark 14, 19 will, by the way, say that they'll say it one by one. And not, in other words, it's as if Jesus were looking around the table and every one of them says the same. One thing is we really do realize that Jesus knows us better than we do. But I've got to be honest. Every one of these people will... They, whoever they were, I don't know about Judas, were exceedingly sorrowful. In essence, they were overflowing with a physically felt grief. Would I be? If Jesus were to look at me and say to me tonight, tonight you're going to fail me. You're going to fall out tonight. One of you, you're just going to really, you're going to turn your back on me tonight. Would I physically hurt over that? Because I should. Especially if I claim that he's my first love, how can I possibly allow myself to really not feel and know that I would hurt him? I wouldn't do that to my daughter. I wouldn't do that to my wife. How in the world could I do that with him? And I, I just, what that tells me is, is that these guys were still serious about Jesus. Even in their own weakness, they were still serious about Jesus. And he looks and he's like, one of you, you're going to betray me. And they all are like, it's me? It's me? He answered and said, he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. 
The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, to be honest, it would have been better if you had never born. And Judas, who, by the way, I love the fact it doesn't say Judas who had betrayed him already, because he had already betrayed him, but his commitment to that betrayal carried through the moment. I've had the... I don't even want to say the privilege because it really isn't that, the honor, but it is in some ways. But the, the rough experience of having to sit with spouses who've had to confess their uh, infidelity with their spouse. Both sides, by the way, male to female, uh, husband to wife, wife to husband, I've had to do both. And sat there while they had to explain. But I remember... In one situation, it was a situation where the person had done something inelegant. I'm not in any way devaluating, but they had made a really stupid set of choices, as one would in a situation like that. But they had gotten, and they kept inching themselves to the point where they had gotten themselves to a place where they were really in a compromised situation, and they really fled from it. But they still had to confess the fact that they had gotten that close. But they had this confidence in it. There was nothing current about it. They changed their phone so that they knew they weren't going to get any more calls. They did everything they could to seal the deal to make sure, including bringing me in, to make sure that I could actually call the individual and tell them that they are going to never call back. And if they were, there was going to be a restraining order put on them. It was a very serious situation. What was clear, that was actually a guy in that situation. And in that situation, the guy was really serious. So when he sat and he had to tell his wife the situation, he had to tell her about a past tense event. And needless to say, it broke her heart. But the good news is they worked through it and they have a very healthy marriage now. Praise the Lord for that. But part of it was that it was something they had to deal with and they had to, they had to reconcile and they had to bury and they had to put away. There's another situation where a gal had gotten involved in it on a man via the internet. She was uh, in one of those sort of chat room kind of things, but it seemed like it was sort of a Christian chat room. So she thought she was safe. But ultimately, she was developing a sense of intimacy with an individual who her husband had no idea. Uh, and he never met her, him. And so ultimately, they, you know, they continued to talk about things. And ultimately, he was married too. So there was the situation where I was like, well, they were comparing marriages. And, well, does your spouse do this? You know, the kind of stuff that really, in essence, breeds intimacy, whether you know it or not. And ultimately, they decided to meet. And as they decided to meet, they decided to develop this relationship. <clears throat> well, ultimately... Uh, she got she got nailed on it in a situation like this. The husband actually went to go pick up food for the kids, and as he went to pick up food for the kids, there was his wife having dinner with this man, supposed to be at work. And you can imagine, so it was a very very different situation. And as they sat there, to be honest, I think she was very very confused at that moment about whether or not she really even wanted to break it off with this individual. But her situation was current. And needless to say, that was an infinitely harder situation to deal with because you're dealing with somebody who isn't even sure whether they even want to change. The reason I say that is Judas is the second here. The only difference is Judas is sure he doesn't want to change. He is committed to this. And he is currently, even at this moment, though no one can see it, he is still betraying Jesus. And every breath he takes is a betraying breath right now. Because it's a breath God gave him. And his mind is rolling over, over and over about the money and how he's going, what he's going to do with that money. His mind is rolling over when he's going to be able to get the people and where Jesus is going to be. His mind is conniving and putting the facts together so that he can close this deal because he isn't paid yet until he gets those guys there. 
And so Judas is still working this thing out and he's working it out. None of us can see it. But God says, let me just tell you, he's still betraying me right at this very moment. And I imagine how uncomfortable he must be at a moment like this. And we still don't see it. So, as he was betraying him at that moment, he said, it's me. And Jesus says, you said it. Luke 22 again, it says he saw an opportunity to betray him in the absence of the multitude. It tells us that as Judas would eat this piece of bread, and ultimately it'll tell us, by the way, that John was leaning into his bosom. This is in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 26 through 30. John would be leaning into Jesus' bosom. If you know you ate, uh, you didn't eat like what you know Da Vinci would put, or Michelangelo, where everyone sort of, all right, everyone behind the table for a pitcher, you know, that kind of thing. You sat in something that was shaped like a staple. It's called a Roman triclinium. Triclinium because it's three sides, triclinium. And so you sat like that, and everybody leaned on their left elbow and ate with their right hand. And you're probably aware of that. If you've ever been to India, you would certainly know this is the uh, out hand, this is the in hand. This is the hand you feed with, this is the hand you wipe with. Uh, I'm not trying to be graphic, but you get the idea why you would eat with your left hand. Or shake with your left hand. And for a left-handed guy, it was a rough place. But you're leaning on your left elbow, you're eating with your right, and so the next person over, you're leaning into someone's bosom and someone else is leaning into yours. According to the Gospel of John, John is leaning into Jesus' bosom and he asks him because Peter's across the table. Because it says Peter looks at across the table. So he's at the other end of the staple. Now remember Jesus had said, when you go into a room, choose the lowest place at the table and let someone invite you up. So Peter takes the lowest place at the table and nobody invites him up. And I can see Jesus kind of having a little fun with that. You know, let's just leave him there and see what he does. You can see him kind of be like, hey, I'm over here. Just want you to know I'm over here. Just over here. I'm the lower end. Sitting here. Sitting here. Jesus is like, gotcha. Right? But he's, you know, he's, you know, he's sitting there. John is leaning on him, but John would ask him. So Peter has to look across the table. He's like, who is it? Find out who it is. You know? And of course, like, no one's going to notice that, right? And so then John's going to be like, Jesus, uh, so who is it? And he says, the one who dips his bread with me and shops at the same time. So that tells us it has to be the bread that would be dipped and it would have to be the modern. But for that to happen, where do you think Judas is? Well, Judas has to be on the other side of Jesus. So Jesus has to be laying in the bosom of Judas because nobody else is going to reach around that far to go and get to sop that bread. So then Jesus would turn him and go, what you have to do, do quickly. And we read Satan entered him and he left. And the most amazing part is though Jesus just said, if we, do, if we play it out, one of you will betray me. What you have to do, do quickly. Judas leaves. Nobody thinks those two things are connected. They actually think that Judas is going to the store. It's Passover night in Jerusalem. What store is open on Passover night in Jerusalem? Or they think he's giving something to the poor. Because after all, the last time we heard Judas, he was rebuking the girl because he said that could have been sold and given money given to the poor. And now Judas is gone. And this man has lifted his heel against Jesus. And he is not going to return. And Jesus now takes bread. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it, and took, and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this. This is my body. Now it is important to note a couple of things, and we'll pick this up a little bit. 
But all the way back in John chapter 6, I believe verse 54, Jesus told us that unless we ate of his flesh and drank of his blood, we'd have no part in him. And he said, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing here. His flesh is really food. It's bread. And his blood is really drink. It's wine. And he takes this thing, but notice he calls it his body. And it's a completely side message, but it is a really important one. Because Jesus called it his body, but what is his body today? We are. It tells us for what it's worth in Romans 12, 5, that we all, being many, are one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 8, Ephesians 5, 30, we read, We are the body of Christ. He's the head of that body. So none of y'all are steering things. That includes me. Colossians 1, 18, Hebrews 13, 3. James 2.26, by the way, tells us that with the body without the spirit, it's dead. And that's important to note even in this. The reason I say that is, is as I look at this, and he says, this is my body, notice the three things he did and in the order he did them. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. I don't want to warn you, as his body, he's going to do that with us. He's going to bless us, he's going to break us, so that he can give us. Now, note that. And it has to be in that order. Take this and eat. This is my body. Luke twenty-two nineteen in the countertext of this would say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to continue doing this even after I'm gone. And when you do, you better be remembering me when you do it. Don't just close your eyes and put a wafer in your tongue. Don't just do something because you don't know what you're doing. When you do this, you've got to be thinking about this with me. Now, it's interesting. Do you know that two other times Jesus has already taken bread? And we have record of it. It just also involves fish. In Matthew fourteen nineteen, Jesus took it to feed the 5,000, if you remember, five loaves and two fish. And in Matthew fifteen thirty six, he fed the 4,000. Interesting, in both cases it says he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. He, he gave thanks, broke, and gave them to his disciples. This is the way Jesus works. He blesses, he breaks, and he gives out. And he wants to do that with you. Will you let him? And then he says he took the cup and gave thanks. Luke would make clear he had already drank a cup prior the meal, because you do that before the meal. And there's a cup after. Do you know the biggest difference between the two cups? Is that the first cup had 12 people with Jesus. The second cup had 11 the first cup Jesus drank of and then said, I'm not going to drink with you again until I drink. And we read that here. And then we have this particular cup. Now that's important. Remember, the first cup pointed us backwards to the slavery that we were in and the promise that God would redeem. The second cup pointed us forward that God wanted to deliver us into the place of his arms, the place of plenty, the place of fruitfulness. And you know what's interesting in this? There are two people we're going to see Peter focused on in a moment. There's Judas and Peter compared. There's two actions, betrayal with, with Judas and abandonment with Peter. He says, you'll deny you even knew me. Thrice you'll do that, by the way. There's two items, the bread and the cup. And then there are two cups that are actually used. We're in the second of those two cups here. And it's interesting because if you look at the Old Testament, there are really only two cups. One cup is in Isaiah 51:17, where it tells us it is the cup of God's fury, the cup of trembling. 
We read that it is the cup of horror and desolation in Ezekiel 23:33, and it is. But yet God would say in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 51:22, I will take that cup out of your hand, the cup of trembling, the cup, the dregs of the cup of my fury. God would take that out of our hands and take it Himself. The other cup, by the way. Jeremiah 16.7 says it's the cup of consolation. Uh, Psalm 116.13, it calls it the cup of salvation. Now, please understand in this. When Jesus is offering the second cup, it's because he knows he's going to partake of the first one himself. You get the idea why Jesus in the garden would say, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from before me. I and you, we have earned the cup of God's wrath. We have earned the cup of God's horror and desolation. We have earned that in our unfaithfulness. We have earned that in our sin. Yet the most amazing part about this is, though that's the case, God took that cup out of our hands and drank it himself. That's the message of the cross. And that's the bread broken for us. And yet in that, there's a second cup. And that is the cup that is to be drunk afterwards, which promises that God will finish the work he's begun in us. And that takes a covenant of relationship. And that's the cup he's offering now, the cup of salvation, the cup of consolation. And the only reason we could drink of the second cup is because he himself drank of the first. To the dregs. Do you know what the dregs are? That's the bottom nasty part. If you drink tea, I drink a lot of tea. It's the part that gets left at the bottom that nobody wants to touch. Or better yet, if you've ever drank a Turkish coffee, you know where I think they just scoop like a little pile of dirt in the bottom and then they just put water and let it float. turns black and they give it to you. You know, and then at the bottom there's like the stuff that you, you know, anyways, that you used to like clean off your sidewalks, your you know, concrete. Anyways, well, all of that said, here's the point of it is that Jesus is looking and he's saying, here's the cup I want to offer you now. But he's not offering to Judas, but he is offering to us. And you know the difference between us and Judas? Please hear me, because we're almost done. Please hear me. The difference between Judas and Peter was not Peter's faithfulness, was it? Judas never denied that he knew Jesus. Peter did thrice. The difference was Peter came back. That's the difference. The difference was the perfect versus the imperfect. Judas would turn and he'd never come back. See, what Judas would not agree to was Jesus as Savior first, as forgiver. And so none of this would mean anything. Judas would take his own sin into his own hands. On the other side of it, Peter would fall and he would fall real hard. But he'd come back. You know, it says in the book of Proverbs that a righteous man may fall seven times, but he'll get back up again. That's not license to fall, but it is encouragement to know that God didn't demand you to be perfect. On the other side of it, it says, but the wicked will fall by calamity. And the difference, again, there's a comparison of perfect and imperfect, is they'll fall and they can't get up. Now, one other thing, and then we'll bring this to Peter and close this. Jesus says this in verse 29, and look at it with me so you know I'm not making this up. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And these are the last words he says before they sing and leave the Passover. These are the words that echo in my head. Now, if you know anything about the, the, and we talk often about the Hebrew engagement ceremony, the betrothal ceremony. The cup that is offered, the husband offers his protection, his pleasure, his provision. 
She drinks of it agreeing to his terms. She offers her faithfulness and purity, and he drinks agreeing to her terms. According to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus doesn't drink of this cup, but they do. He is offering his protection, protection, his pleasure, his provision, and they are agreeing to it. But he is not agreeing to their faithfulness because he knows tonight they'll all bail on him tonight. But see, understand, there was another cup awaiting, and that cup was not the cup, the first one, before, so the Kosheva, that's the cup of this covenant. But the second one happened after the wedding, or if you will, actually, during the wedding, and it was called the Koskohen, which means the cup of a priest. And this was the cup that was put in the tent. Now, it's very weird for our culture, especially our culture here. But the idea was, is the woman had kept herself pure. So actually, at the wedding, they would engage in marital... You get it. Anyways, I'm not going to develop that. You get it. And they would be able able to prove her purity because of that as the hymen was broken. And that blood would bleed onto a white sheet that he would actually show to the, the crowd. He would show it now. Can you imagine? Some of you would rather pass. Most of you would rather pass out if not all, than have that happen. But get the idea here. This was his boasting that his bride was pure. And then what would because and by the way, in that culture, that was that was better than being fine. That was better than the, than your shape or your face or your hair or anything. Nothing could be more beautiful or intrinsically valuable in the sight of the people than that. Then he would go in and he'd offer the cup, the Costco. And that cup says, you're as pure as a priest. And we're not talking about the priests that we see here that were pretty rotten. The idea was, you're as pure as the most pure thing that I can think of on earth. And he would look at it with that purity. And there's a story uh, that's told in the Talmud about, which is a collection of Jewish uh, stories, where a man had uh, loved the woman, but he came and they had their um, time and he discovered that she wasn't... uh, that she hadn't blood on the sheet, which, of course, knew that if he actually walked out there and showed an empty sheet, they would stone her, and so, or he had the right to. So ultimately, he cut himself and blood on the sheet so that his blood would be on the sheet so that she, to keep her alive. But he wouldn't offer her the Costco hen because he couldn't, because she wasn't pure. Now, put these statements together here. Jesus looks and he's about to tell them every one of them are going to fail away. Every one of them are going to fail on him. Every one of them are going to fall. But I have a cup waiting for you when we're done with this. And that cup is a cup where I declare you pure. And I already know you're going to fall. I already know you're going to fail. I already know you're going to blow it. But I am the reason why I could offer you this cup because my body was broken and because my body was broken all that sin is paid for and because that sin is paid for this cup and imagine jesus looking at you and saying you're pure none of that is there it's all gone i don't see it and we know scripture tells us he casts our sin as far as east is from west that he chooses to remember it no more why are we trying to remind god of what he chooses chooses to forget and here we are and he's like look at he goes i'm already going to drink this cup with you we have this date you guys and this date is where i'm going to look at you and declare you to all of the wedding party this is my pure bride and in light of that then he says Verse 31, and immediately after, it says, them all of you be made to stumble because of me tonight. And you know why? 
because it's in Scripture. And Jesus' total faith in Scripture makes clear if it's in Scripture, it's not going to be broken. Jesus was not one of those people that twisted Scripture to try to make it fit. If it said it, it was true. And he says, I know what Zechariah 13.7 says, that when the shepherd gets struck, the sheep will flee. I do know it's imperfect. That's good news. But I do know you're all going to bail tonight. But he says, listen, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Did you notice he says, that is not the end. And we have a date on the other side of this. And I'll already be waiting for you. You guys need to know. I know you. I, God already knows the things you have yet to discover. Every stupid thing we're still going to do. And he says, I have a date on the other side of all of this. And I have a cup in my hand and I'm waiting for you. Now that is no license to sin. But it sure is encouraging. See, what the cup says is, I'm committed to you, Jesus speaking. Remember, he had them drink. They agreed to his terms. The bread says, I paid for it all. The cup says, now that we've gotten you out of Egypt with that bread, if you will, now I'm going to get you home. That's the cup. Peter, of course, is going to stand up here in verse 33, and this is the end of it. He says, even if all are made to stumble, because of you I will never be made to stumble. If you really want to see how tight Jesus gets with that, look at Luke 22, 31 to 33. You'll see what Jesus says in that. But he will say, I'm ready to go to prison and die for you. Do you really think Peter, let me ask you genuinely, do you think Peter believed what he was saying? I do, yeah. I'm pretty sure that Peter was like, that. you don't realize what Peter is so convinced of his own personal strength, he's actually telling Jesus that he's wrong. There's no way you can be right and Jesus is going to be wrong. And I look at this and I realize this, what is it in Peter here? Because if we realize that we could fall, how do we avoid it? Well, Peter, by the way, could easily see how all the other guys could fall. He says, even if everyone else will fail you, I'm not going to. You got me. Remember, you called me Rocky, the rock. Oh, you know, there's no way I'm going to fall. So let me say this and take this to heart as I'm seeking to as well. Peter had an overestimation of the strength of his own personal conviction. Every Thursday, Daniel and I go and sit at a rehab house. But we're interested in the guys that have gotten out, haven't finished the program, but they still text us regularly. And when they fall, oh, you hear the strength of their conviction. Oh, I'm never going to do that again. And there's no confidence we have in the strength of that conviction. It's easy to see that in someone else. Because it's like, oh, you felt just as strongly as this. And if you feel like you fall again and you're like, if I just had a little bit more conviction this time, clearly I'll never do that again. That's what Peter is. He not only had an overestimation of the strength of his conviction, he had an overestimation of himself compared to everyone else. He's like, hey, I can easily see how everyone else is going to fail you. That's clear. But me, on the other hand, that's never going to happen. Jesus, you've been right about everything until now. Third, they need an overestimation of the power of emotion. I've often said that emotion is a great ignition, but it is no steering wheel. And it is no accelerator. It'll get the car started, but it won't get you to the end of the journey because emotion doesn't last very long. That's why love isn't in an emotion. If love was an emotion, well, then it isn't going to last long. Love is a commitment. That's the opposite. Finally, also in that, 
This caused them to to underestimate the indefatigable truth about Scripture. Jesus says, you're in Scripture too, the part where everybody leaves me. Now, I don't know about you, but, well, I would imagine you too. We would look and go, I don't like that part of Scripture. And there's a lot of parts of Scripture I don't like, but it doesn't make it untrue. The part I don't like about it is because I'm self-serving and it tells me not to. So this momentary emotion, regardless of how strong, will never give birth to the might of real commitment. Because commitment, usually you have to bring other people in. So Judas would lead the disciples to condemn Mary for busting that alabaster flask. But Peter would lead all the disciples to contradict Jesus' prophecy. Because notice in verse 35, it says, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Peter was leading that brigade. Showed you, by the way, the majority of the disciples were easily led. They were either led by Judas, and then they were led by Peter. And here's how we close this up. Are you on that precipice right now? You started leaning on your own strength. And you're like, I, I, I'm sure that I'll never do that again. You won't call in help. You won't ask for somebody to genuinely hold you accountable. Instead, what you'll do is you'll just kind of, if I could just present it with enough passion, clearly I'll never do it again. If I could just be convicted and say to God, oh God, never again. God's not fooled by that. Do you know who, gets, you know who actually is fooled by that? ourselves. That performance is all for us because God isn't buying it. But in this story, listen, Judas would leave, he would betray Jesus. And in that betrayal, even Judas's sin was paid for on the cross. Judas just wouldn't take it because all the sin was laid on that cross and that was the broken bread. But abandonment, when we feel like we've done something and we've lost the relationship, well, that's the cup. What the cup says is, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Even if you're faithless, I'll remain faithful. And the reason is, because I already know how weak you are. Imagine, Jesus got in the relationship with you and with me, knowing all of the failures we're going to do. And he still chose to get in the relationship anyways. You're not going to surprise him. It doesn't mean he's like, well, I didn't realize you were going to do that. Forget it, the deal's off. We know better than that. So what do we do with that? We praise him. And we celebrate him. And we live going, hallelujah, thank you, what a savior. That, <laughs> that this is the person we can turn to. And you know what the crazy part is? Maybe you've been trying to share Jesus with someone and then you did something stupid in front of them. You've been telling them Jesus is the forgiver and he's the forgiver of sins, and then you did something so you could actually demonstrate Jesus forgiving sins by going to Jesus, getting that sin forgiven, and showing the people how God changes you from that. But you think you've blown it because after all, you sinned. But I say, show them that he's the sin forgiver and walk with Jesus because the cup promises me I'm not going to lose him for it. Now, again, that's no license to sin, but it sure is a cause to celebrate. So as we pray today, as we go to the Lord now in prayer, I want us today to be able to realize that that bread from this point on that we partake of is going to be a bread that points us back to the price being paid for good. All of the sin. 
But the cup shows us there is a covenant, a relationship. And that cup points me to another cup waiting me when I see my groom. And he declares me pure. You'll find that in another religion. You won't. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text. What a glorious thing, Lord. And Lord, we realize that the reason why you said it would have been better for him not to be born was not because of his simple betrayal, but because his betrayal would earmark the rest of his life. That his whole life would be set on course from that betrayal that would never turn back. And I can't even imagine how broken your heart was, Jesus. As you thought about Judas's eternity and your eternity without him. And how hard it must have been to realize that this man walked with you and saw you forgive, saw you heal, saw you cleanse, saw you transform, saw you raise the dead, saw you lift the gal who had been caught in adultery and say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. For him to see all of that but never take it to heart because he was too busy seeking how to skim from the top of the purse. And then there would be the rest who would see that you would be willing to go to a centurion's house, lay hands on a leper, sit with a woman who had had five failed marriages in Samaria, Reach out to a girl who had had seven demons. Cross the lake for a couple men possessed by a legion of demons. And there was no place you were afraid to go. And there was no dark place that would be dark when you got there. And to watch all of hell's army bow before you as these men worship you. And to realize in all of that, that when you offered this cup, you offered it for good. And I want to thank you for your faithfulness. And I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I pray today that as we confess you, Savior, like the bread, and Lord, like the cup, that we walk out of here so encouraged that all of our sin and shame and iniquity have been paid for. And we're not to look back at that, but now to look forward to that relationship that we have even now, the covenant you made with us. So teach us, Lord, I pray, to love one another now in that, to not overestimate our own emotion or conviction or any of that, but rather to look at each other and realize, but for your grace, we'd all go to hell without a choice. So thank you for drinking of the first cup that we could have the second. Thank you for saving us.
We confess you as Lord and may we live like it. Jesus, in your name. Amen.